We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Ducks Digest podcast. I'm your host, Max Torres, publisher and lead editor of Ducks Digest on Fan Nation, part of the Sports Illustrated Network covering the Oregon Ducks. Man, this might be the biggest episode that we've had uh, since we got rocking on Ducks Digest. Oregon goes on the road to Columbus and upsets Ohio State in the shoe. Man, we have so much that we can get into here. I'm joined by Ducks Digest reporter Dylan Mickinen, who was on the road with me in Columbus, uh, still is out there in Ohio. I'm back in Eugene. Dylan, how are we doing? How are we feeling after that win? Uh, I am kind of still in disbelief from the victory, if I'm being completely honest. I was the most pessimistic of anyone on the Ducks Digest staff going into the game, and that was before we knew Justin Flo and Kayvon were not going to go. Um, as soon as we saw them walk out in street clothes, I was even more pessimistic. Although there was a little sense of optimism in me because I was shooting the game for Ducks Digest. So I so I, I had a photo credential, which meant, which meant I was on the field basically from an hour and a half before the game kicked off until after the game ended. I think I went into the press box at halftime briefly just to drink water and then came back down. And I saw that the team was very focused, which you obviously always get. But the last time I got that sense was heading into the 2019 Pac-12 championship against Utah, where they were also underdogs by a lot of people, which I also was pretty pessimistic going into that game. I thought Utah was really good. I thought Oregon wasn't that great that year. And, but I saw just an immense sense of focus and purpose from the team. And there was like a little optimism in me, but then once Justin Flo was hurt, I was like, okay, I don't, I I don't think this is going to happen, but we are having a much different tune now because they won somehow 35 28 at the horseshoe they beat number three ohio state first time the ducks have ever beaten the buckeyes ducks have lost had lost i should say the the last nine games i think it was so uh you know finally getting one on the scoreboard there and and it's got to feel good after the the last matchup was the two teams in the national championship um that was what was so weird about this game, Dylan, is I kind of felt like I was going into it at like kind of the same mindset as, as you had, like, okay, I'm not really expecting anything, but Hey, let's give this a shot and see how, how they do. And then it just got, it was just like, okay, they scored first. That was big. I, I thought it was really big that the first quarter was scoreless. So neither team got on the board, but they struck first and then they never looked back. And, you know, it, it kind of just got to the point like, wow, I think they might really, 
be able to pull this off, but they, they definitely took it down to the wire. So we had some points that we kind of wanted to get into just did like a little bit of a, uh, you know, rough draft of, you know, the, the plan for today's pod. But um, I was thinking we could start, you know, maybe looking at uh, either Oregon or we could look at Oregon. Um, I don't know. Would you want to start on offense or defense? I feel like both of them are really interesting. Um, let's start on defense because I feel like that's also kind of how the game went. The defense balled down the first half and the offense balled down the second half. Sure. Yeah, I'm down for that. I mean, when we're looking at this Oregon defense, um, I think that, I mean, it it was kind of hard to get a feel for like what was, I don't really know what I was more confident in. I'd probably say the defense just based off of what we saw in the Fresno State game with them forcing turnovers, but uh, against, um, against Fresno State with the offense, it was, it wasn't looking that great, but the Ducks are able to, to slow down at least the, the super explosive Ohio State offense uh, and those receivers. I, I think Olave and Wilson both had over 100 yards, but they had a lot of catches. So like they didn't get like a lot of chunk explosive plays um, but like we were kind of expecting. And man, they looked like they were really stout uh, in, in, in the run defense as well. So, you know, they just they delivered that opening punch, I think. And then, you know, it was. It was just such a fun back and forth to watch. Yeah, for sure. I thought it was huge how, like you said, it they did keep Ohio State scoreless in that in that first quarter. And honestly, the only points Ohio State scored in the first half was because Mikhail Wright got the signal late and was looking at his wrist. Yeah, what was that? They just ran by him. Which also the previous play before that, before they gave up that touchdown, Noah Sewell got a signal late that I noticed, and he was out of position. I mean, I'm not sure about what the play call was, but in the position that you would normally, you know, be covering in a zone defense as an inside linebacker, that was where the Buckeyes targeted and got a first down at third and eight. And then they ran hurry up in the very next play. Mikhail Wright's looking at his wrist and they give up a touchdown, which that that was very unfortunate. And I'm sure the coaches and the players were very upset at that happening. But besides that, I thought the defense balled out in that first half and uh, I know we mentioned how we were surprised that there weren't many chunk plays, which I was also surprised about. But I think that's just because Oregon's speed is something that the Buckeyes aren't used to playing against in the Big Ten. Like when we were watching the Buckeyes in their opening win against Minnesota, they they had a bunch of those Chris, a bunch of those quick strikes. Those were mostly just like slant routes or an Ohio State receiver getting like a foot of space and just running away from people because Minnesota, even though you know. Go Golden Gophers. My dad was born in Minnesota, so I have a, so I have a soft spot for them. Okay, they're okay. not fast. They're not like they're not going to catch up with Ohio State speed, but Oregon could, and they did because they did give up routinely, you know, a ten or a fifteen yard play, and that was it. They kept them in front of them. They tackled. I was super impressed by Oregon's tackling in this game. It felt like maybe only once or twice did Ohio State get yards after contact that was meaningful. You know, of course you're going to get, you know first guy gets you and you maybe get one or two yards, but there wasn't like Ohio state was bouncing off people and just running for 20 or 30 yards after the catch. I thought open, I thought Oregon's open field tackling was actually quite stellar. Probably some of the best I've seen in years from the program. And that was a huge uh, key to their victory because without Kayvon Thibodeau, without Justin Flo, and especially they got two fourth quarter sacks. That was the first time they ever reached um, 
Yeah, Stroud. And like not even sacking him, there really wasn't even pressure until those sacks. Like he had quite a bit of time to throw for most of it. So they would have to give up completions just because you can't ask the Oregon secondary to cover them for like 10 seconds. Ohio State had three wide receivers go over 100 yards. Stroud had, I think, 484 passing yards. But I left the game thinking, wow, Oregon's defense played exceptional. (laughs) Just because they weren't beat deep. There there was that one time in the fourth quarter where they were beat deep and Stroud just overthrew his man by five yards. So that was fortunate. But for the most part, I thought the defense balled out. And mad props to players like Keith Brown, who's made his college debut. He didn't play against Fresno State. And he was playing at Lebanon last year in Oregon. And his first time playing football since then in an organized manner was in the horseshoe, starting at inside linebacker. And I was on the field. I couldn't, you know, I haven't done my rewatch yet. I'm doing that tomorrow on the flight back to Eugene. But I thought he at least physically looked like he could hang with them and I thought he did a pretty decent job until until he cramped up and had to miss the rest of the game it's just hats off to all the Oregon defenders for stepping up and keeping them in front of them and making Ohio State have to put together a 10 play drive to beat them tons of good stuff that that, uh, we could get into from what you just said Dylan I I, want to talk about the tackling real quick because I thought that was going to be a big key for me you know uh, going into this game, I was kind of just going to have my eye on, you know, is Oregon going to be able to look like a disciplined team, like a crisp team that can execute? And a big part of that on defense is just not missing tackles, not just having, you know, weak arm tackles out there. And, you know, they, they did a good job of, of, you know, containing them in that regard, especially in the run game. Um, and you talked about the speed of Ohio State's wide receivers. I can't remember if it was Olave or Wilson, but there was this one play where uh, Stroud took a deep shot and then Dante Manning was able to kind of get in there towards the end and break it up. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he wasn't like right, right there, but he was fast enough to be close enough to, to ultimately end up breaking up the pass. So that was pretty big. Talk about Dante Manning and Triquez Bridges getting, getting some more action against, uh, you know, the, the best opponent possible. If you're looking just at a, a cornerback versus wide receiver matchup, DJ James looked really good in, in his return to action. Um, after he was unavailable due to disciplinary actions, uh, disciplinary reasons, I should say, um, against Fresno State. Jamal Hill, same deal. He was back. I think we saw more of James than, than Hill. But, yeah, uh, yes, but, did. But, but that was really impressive. Man, yeah, Keith Brown, I, I just want to go back to what you said with him. I was doing some of my rewatch on the, on the flight today, and there were multiple plays where I was like, wow, that, that was Keith Brown in there on that one? Like He, he was looking really, really good. Um, and hell of a way to get your first start in, in college. Um, but, you know, that's just going to... just his first start, his first playing time. Yeah, his first action, period, Ex- exactly. Um, but when we're talking about more guys that stepped up, can we talk about Bennett Williams for a second? Because that dude was everywhere. And I think that when I was watching him, I was kind of processing how I was evaluating his play. Because when you're looking at defensive backs, I feel like you don't always want to see them you know, racking up tackles because sometimes it means they're getting burned and then they have to tackle as a result of that. But from a lot of the tackles that I saw, it wasn't necessarily him in coverage on a man. He was just in in the right spot at the right time. And I had been banging the drum for Bennett Williams. Like this guy needs more play time all of last year. Um, So it it was so nice to to see him get in there. And he tweeted after, you know, the last time I was here, I was with Illinois and we didn't have a spitting chance. And then I came in and got that revenge today. So he was another dude that that stepped up a lot. 
Um, but I don't want to get into too much before I let you, you know, say your piece, but I'd love to talk about the defensive line next. Yeah, for sure. Uh, just a quick thing on Bennett Williams. I thought he also yes. balled out. He had, I think he was second on the team in tackles. He had, according to this quick box score, it says he had seven tackles, which I think Noah's, Noah Sewell may have had more, but I'm not exactly sure. Um, but, and also, yeah, all the most, those weren't because he was getting beat is because he was in the right position, and especially because of the injuries at linebacker. He basically was just a third linebacker for them. They were just constantly in nickel because Ohio state does like to have three wide receiver sets and Oregon just didn't have the bodies to have three linebackers out there. Usually they had the, like their best bet was, Hey, let's just put out a nickel Bennett Williams and Jamal Hill know what they're doing because um, and I and in the in the limited reps that Jeffrey Bossa played at linebacker, I thought he did fine from what I saw. Uh, he was in on the first touchdown Ohio State score, but that wasn't his fault that Mikhail Wright was looking at his wristband, and it looked like he was in the correct position on that play. But of course, Tim DeRuiter is going to want to have you know, like Bennett Williams and Jamal Hill out there who are experienced players and have played in big games. Bennett Williams was a freshman All-American at Illinois. Jamal Hill may have was like, I, I wouldn't say he was the MVP of the Pac-12 championship game last year, but he was probably one of the top five best performing ducks in that game. And yeah, but let's get, but let's get into the, into the defensive line because Ohio state could not run on the ducks whenever they ran. Cause I'm, I'm going to be honest, obviously I'm rooting for Oregon to win the game. I went to U of O. I was pretty happy whenever or whenever Ohio State handed the ball off and didn't pass the ball because at worst it'd be a 10-yard gain and not like a 50-yard bomb. And it was so nice being able to be on the other end of a fourth and short run up the middle that got stuffed multiple times. <laughs> yeah. Like it was unreal. Some of the play calling by Ryan Day was a bit questionable, but I think also a big thing and we'll get back to to the defensive line, but I want to say this before I forget. So much of Oregon's defensive strategy seemed to be they'll have to sustain drives and they're going to have to play perfect. I think if Justin Fields plays that game yesterday, Ohio State wins because there were some times that players were open downfield and Justin Fields just always made perfect throws. But Justin Fields wasn't playing in that game. And C.J. Stroud making his second start ever in college football was not going to be good enough to, to... to be perfect and that was the perfect game plan for Oregon to come to come come away with a victory the Ducks did look very stout against the run looking at the stats here uh official stats from uh Ohio State after the game 31 carries for Ohio State on the ground just 128 rushing yards you compare that with Oregon 38 carries for 269 yards uh getting a lot of chunk yards from CJ Verdell he had that big 77 yard touchdown run uh, but back to the the run defense, um, I think that it, it just it was so encouraging to see how Oregon's size matched up with with Ohio State. Uh, we were listening to pre- we were at you know press conferences leading up to this game, and they were talking about how uh, Ohio State had a lot of like tackle size linemen across the board. So Oregon was maybe a little bit uh, you know outmatched size wise there, but man, they they really you know asserted themselves, and I think that the reason that we were so confident in part, at least when Ohio state was running, if you want to say confident, just maybe more comfortable 
was just when they were passing, Stroud just had all day to throw for like 75% of the game because the, the pass rush just wasn't there, um, or at least not nearly to the level that they needed it to be. Um, obviously, you know, Kayvon Thibodeau would have made a huge difference there. But, yeah, there were a lot of times when Stroud just had all day to throw. You're looking at his final stats, 35 for 54 uh, with with one interception, and he got sacked twice. Both those come in really late in the game. DJ Johnson having that that huge one as well as Braden Swinson. But Stroud, when when he was throwing, you know, he made some good plays that that showed you why he was such a highly touted recruit, you know, 2019 Elite 11 MVP. But – at the same time, you definitely saw this kid's a freshman. You know, he was missing high. He either missed high or he overthrew the ball. And that was ultimately what ended up uh, allowing Verone McKinley to get that big interception towards the end. But uh, another guy that stepped up for Ohio State was Jackson Smith and Jigba, uh, another freshman. He, he was just, you know, stellar. He had uh, seven catches on 11 targets for 145 yards and two touchdowns. So, it's it's like you know the ducks hung in there, but you know they still kind of got torn apart a bit by these wide receivers. But I feel like this is the ultimate bend don't break, uh, you know, image of a of a defense because especially as the game wound down, I think that we were having less. It was, I felt like the offense was carrying most of the load. Like that was the unit that we the side of the ball that we had more confidence in. And I was like, man, like especially because all the injuries were on the defensive side of the ball, and you're like, wow, Keith Brown's probably not coming back in because we kept seeing Nate Hukulani, uh, you know, going out there next to flow and credit to Hukulani. He played a, a great game. Um, you know, when, when you're thinking about him being a former walk on and, and holding his own against Ohio state. So I'm trying to think of maybe some more, some more numbers that, uh, that could be interesting to say here, but I just threw a lot at you Dylan. So I'm definitely want to yeah. see what you have to say. Yeah. Uh, I would definitely agree that, I probably had more confidence in the offense in the second half, but also I wonder if the Oregon was kind of able to use Ohio state's aggressiveness kind of against it by using the bend down break because Ohio state went for it on fourth down a lot, which is perfectly fine. But it also meant that they were not going to be kicking field goals to get points on. Like if you look back at that, at that opening possession by Ohio state where Oregon stopped them on a fourth down, they could have kicked a field goal there and taken a three. Oh yeah. Lead. They had a good spot. And they didn't. They didn't. They instead were like, no, we want to control the game. That was and huge. that actually let Oregon because Oregon stopped them. It gave Oregon all this momentum. And then as soon as Oregon had that pivotal nine, nine, 99 yard drive, they were in control for a large portion of the game. And I obviously think Ohio State was prepared for the game maybe not that their defense because they didn't understand that you could cover the left side of the field but um because we were both in attendance and I and um my dad and I were wearing like Oregon gear in the airport and stuff and a bunch of Ohio State fans were like oh I hope you guys are ready for some Big Ten football some Big Ten physicality and I just kept thinking they have no idea what Oregon is right now. They still think Oregon's that Chip Kelly, just like lightning fast team. And instead they saw Ohio State get out physical or I don't know how to pronounce that. Yeah, but like, yeah, yeah no, that's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. By a Pac-12 team that this was the first time I read that a Pac-12 team had won a road non-conference game against top three opponents since 1990. 
That's insane. It's 31 years. That That's unreal. The Pac-12 had such little respect just as a conference, and Oregon single-handedly was like, fine, I'll do it myself. I'll go into the horseshoe and come away with it the first time a team's won in the horseshoe since 2017. Man, it, it was something to behold for sure. I'm looking at the, the drive sheet here because I really liked what you talked about with that, that opening drive that – when OSU was faced with a decision to make, like, hey, you can kick it and take some points or you can, you know, test your luck. And and because I feel like that was so pivotal because it was Ryan Day saying, okay, sure, you got us to fourth down, but I have confidence in my offense. And, like, I don't think you guys are going to be able to stop us. Yeah. Nine I think plays. It was fourth and seven, too. Yeah. I, or I can't see exactly how much it was, but it was nine plays, 44 yards to, to open the game. Uh, got it down to the Oregon 31-yard line, I believe, if, I, if I'm reading this right. Um, but I, maybe I feel like they might've been closer than that. So let's not talk about that, but, but that was just so big because they, they were able to, that was like the first message I feel like we saw where it was like, okay, uh, you know, we, we can hang with you and, you know, we'll take your best shot and, 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 you know, counter it obviously, especially on these fourth downs, uh, the fourth down stat I was looking at, I think Ohio state was two for five over the the whole game i'm flipping through my handy dandy notes here if you're watching on youtube you can see me uh flipping through this yeah fourth down two for five for ohio state but if we're also going to talk we need if we're talking about the defense we cannot uh get out of this podcast without talking about Verone mckinley and noah sewell uh let's just start with sewell uh i remember that you were talking about him being he was a leader one of the leaders in uh tackles yeah. for the ducks and uh, looking it up he was second on the team and or he was he was third on the team in tackles. I think Mikhail Wright had ten, Bennett Williams had eight, and Noah Sewell and Steve Stevens the fourth had seven. seven. Yeah, so I mean Sewell was just all over the place. I know there was just one play early on in the in the game where he can't like two guys wrapped him up wrapped up the running back, and then he was still kind of going. And then you see Sewell come in and support and just literally like just it looked like he was throwing his forearm and just bashed into the guy. And, um, and, you know, just mowed him over. So that was huge. He was just all over the place making plays. Um, definitely a guy that helped Oregon stick with Ohio State, if not, uh, you know, obviously uh, exceed their physicality. Um, but I think what I really liked about him is, is I can't remember exactly when it happened, but there was a play where there was a big hit between an Oregon, uh, between an Ohio State guy and, and Sewell, and Sewell was down. I think some of the Ohio State fans might have thought it was a dirty hit that he should have been flagged oh, for. But, um, yeah. Yeah, so it was late in the game. He was down for a while, and we're like, oh, or I was kind of just thinking, man, like if that guy's out, it's it's going to be tough for Oregon. Oregon's defense, which was already so hindered by injuries, and then Sewell comes back in. Like that, Noah Sewell is the Iron Man of the Oregon defense, and I just love watching that dude play. Yeah, I mean, he was he was carted off against UCLA last year, and he just started the next game. And I'm, and I think I remember Cristobal on Tuesday was like, "Oh yeah, Noah was a full go today." We were like, "What? We thought he was gonna be out for the year." Oh yeah, he was literally getting carted off, and I think he might have had a towel over his face or something. But I saw him because I was at that game. I saw him like banging on the on the cart, like in pain and frustration. I mean. Maybe I can't say for sure it was pain, but you would kind of figure those two kind of go hand in hand when someone's getting carted off. Um, but yeah, I can't say enough about that dude. Um, you know, he's looking like a a first a future first round pick. Oh, I feel like you can sure. say that pretty safely now. Someone on my timeline the other day quote tweeted my video of him and said, "I think he's better than Panay was," which may be a little early to be be saying that, but that dude's a stud. 
Yeah, I mean, Mario did did say he thinks Noah Sewell is the best linebacker in the country after his uh, or after the game during his press conference. Obviously, he's going to hype up his own players. Um, I wouldn't probably go as far to say he's better than Panay because Panay was arguably like the best player in the country as a left tackle. Obviously, as a left tackle, you're. Um, impact is a bit minimalized because you you're only one fifth the offensive line, but he won like the Outland Trophy. But Noah Sewell is could go down as one of the best, if not the best, linebacker Oregon's seen. I I thought what a lot of people I, I kept seeing on Twitter like, oh, Oregon's down its two best defensive players. Imagine if they were playing, and I just kept thinking, I'm like, I love Justin Flo. I think he's a baller. I think he's a stud. But Noah Sewell and Mikael Wright are better than Justin Flo at this point. I think I think Justin Flo probably has a higher ceiling because he's just so insane athletically. But as of right now, Noah he Sewell hasn't played is- that much. So exactly, like maybe um, people are. I can see why people are excited. Yeah, and Noah Sewell was also the one that came up with that key fourth and one stop, where he just shot out of a cannon and then got Oregon the ball back. Uh, and Verone McKinley had two key third down pass breakups, which they should Big have hits. easily been completed. And he just laid the boom on him. And Verone's another guy that's just, it's been awesome to see him develop at Oregon. His first, his, his first time ever playing college football um, was that Auburn game where he gave up that game winning touchdown. And then in this game, he had multiple key pass breakups down the field for what could arguably be the biggest regular season win in Oregon program history. Like that's just an, that's just awesome for him. And it's also funny to think that Verone is like a redshirt sophomore right now. Like he's been here for a while. It feels like, yeah, I think he signed in 2018. It's his fourth year on campus, but he has two more years of eligibility after this because of COVID. Yeah. Yeah. That, that guy is, that's all I'm, like, I'm saying. His like his development arc has just been so great because he was a guy who also played pretty early. Um, I know he had one of the the first play that like really put him on my radar was his pick against Colorado in the end zone. That was like a toe tap one. That oh, was yeah, just yeah. absolutely insane. And then when we're talking about his Ohio State performance, he had the two big pass breakups on third down, which were big hits. He had the that big interception at the uh, late in the in the fourth. And he also had that strip on one of the kickoffs that, that Ohio State was lucky enough to get back. So that dude was just doing everything for Oregon. He was all over the field. And I'd be curious to kind of see where his draft stock lies after after a performance like that against Ohio State because you got to figure it's just going to be climbing as the season goes if you can keep up his, uh, you know, the production that he's at. Oh, yeah, for sure. And there was a lot of NFL scouts. And, like, I saw even, like, the Vikings journal manager was there. Which I, I mean, like I know what he looks like because I'm a Vikings fan. I was like, "Is that Rick Spielman?" As I was walking by him on the field, and I was like, "Oh, it is Rick Spielman. That's pretty dope." Um, no, I have to think that Verone will. I don't know if he's going to declare at the end of the year, but when he leaves Oregon, I think he'll at worst get like an NFL camp invite because he is very good, and he showed exactly why on Saturday. Absolutely. Well, let's see. Uh, do you want to talk about anything else on the defense? Because we have so much to get into on offense, and we haven't even gotten there yet. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Uh, I no, I don't have anything. Oh, uh, I guess I have one thing. I know we were talking about TriQuest Bridges and Dante Manning. I thought they both played very well. DJ James also played well. Mikhail Wright played well, going without saying. Besides that one time, he was looking at his wrist. Um, but like TriQuest Bridges was getting snaps in the red zone. I saw, and he 
had a very key pass breakup that negated a touchdown. And, and I was like, there's his wingspan coming in because he was not in position originally, but he was just able to sprint as soon as the ball was thrown and break up that pass. Dante Manning was in pos- also had a pass breakup in the end zone. And I think DJ James also had one on a, on a, on a fourth down play. That was a pass breakup in the end zone. So those are all just very key, huge plays from the secondary. And that was really the difference in the game because it was, because there was a one score result. Yeah, it, it was uh, definitely some big plays by a variety of players. I think that's what was so great about this overall defensive effort. You just saw guy after guy after guy stepping up. Trevin made uh, Maya did a, a good job stepping up as well, even though he got dinged up a little bit. Um, we already talked about Jeff Bossa doing some some work at linebacker and uh yeah that that was really big so let's let's flip it now let's go on the other side of the ball uh, on offense where i think the the storyline has to start with anthony brown oh without a doubt you really saw why so many people within the program just believe in him i loved him laying the boom as if he was jeremiah masoli in 2009 uh, it was really funny being on the sideline because you could like tell what Ohio State fans just came and thought they were just going to roll over Oregon, which I me mean, rightfully so. I guess that's what I thought was going to happen. But like sometimes the offense would make plays, and I would and I'd want to look at the crowd, and they would just be shocked. Like Devin Williams had that huge catch down the sideline, and this guy in the front row, this Ohio State fan, was just like, "What?" <laughs> and then, um. Oh god, who were we just talking about before I brought up Devin Williams? Anthony Brown. Yes, and then when Anthony Brown decked that guy, I I didn't realize that that was the difference between moving the chains because I was on the field, so you know, like sometimes your perspective's not like dead on the ball. I just thought he decked him and got a decent gain. I gain. I went back and rewatched the highlights from the broadcast feed later, and. He, he, by all accounts, he probably should have been short a yard, and Anthony Brown was like, "Nah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move the chains," and he just Wait room. an Ohio State player and got it. And I thought it was very interesting that Mark Cristobal said after the game that people in the locker room started to believe in Anthony Brown near the end of last season, which I feel like you can kind of infer coincides with kind of when Tyler Shuck started. Ha- being put on more of a leash and started um, having like going through the yips kind of was towards the end of the year. Like he definitely started off great last year. And then as the year progressed was not as good. And then during the Fiesta Bowl, him and Anthony Brown were splitting time, which is very bizarre. But then you watch this game and you're like, why was Anthony Brown not the starter the whole time? Like he's, he, he is a Joe Moorhead quarterback and there was just so much diverse or like diversity of the offense that they could do, especially where they, I think there was one key play in the fourth quarter where they had CJ Verdell motion out as if he's going for a swing pass. And then they just ran QB power (laughs) and he went and got like five or six yards. It was so great to just see how different the offense looked from one week to the next, which is, I think, I think that makes that's part of what makes this win that much more improbable people were probably saying, okay, I understand that they're going to, you know, something's going to have to click like, Oh, Hey, we can't be that bad against Ohio state, but for the execution to go from where it was against Fresno state to where we saw it yesterday is unbelievable. Um, So credit to Joe Moorhead for the creativity that he, that he showed in the play calling. 
um, there he you know he he just found some plays that that were working and and he kept it, he kept turning to him I and mean, you see it on on a lot of these touchdown runs from Verdell and Die you know sweeping around the around the edge um, and it was just clear as day because because they were just schemed so well and, and and credit to Anthony Brown for for putting his body on the line like you were saying uh, ten carries for sixty five yards. So six and a half yards a pop with a long of 20 or sorry, 18, 18 was his longest run. So he, he was just doing it all. And, and he looked so composed. I mean, it, this was a weird thing that I wasn't expecting, but the press box was completely covered or guarded by, you know, glass. So we maybe heard like 5% of the actual noise coming from uh, the stadium. It was, and, and, and then we went, when we got to go down, uh, you know, in the, the final minutes of the game, and it was just roaring. It was deafening. And you got to think that his experience in playing in big games uh, definitely comes in handy there. And, and he he uh, was on the same page with, with Alex Forsyth. You know, they were talking after the game about how they only had to turn to the silent cadence uh, a limited number of times towards the end there. So, and then the offensive line. Oh, my God. The offensive line just absolutely, absolutely stunned. Ohio State's front seven, especially the, along the likes of Zach Harrison and and Haskell Garrett, Anthony Brown just had had a lot of time to throw, and then you saw some really big lanes, and then he finally pushed the ball down the field. What so many fans had been just demanding, um, you know, mixed results, I would say, but just seeing that and seeing him just have the confidence to do that was just something we did not see last year. Uh, from 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 Shuck or Brown in the limited uh, limited you know sample size that we had, I think. Yeah, for sure. And and talking about uh, Joe Moorhead's play calling, I thought it was exceptional. And he and on CJ Verdell's long touchdown run, that was both in, an incredible play call because what it I don't know if you've had a chance to like rewatch that play and dissect that individual play, but what happens is that. Um, Ohio State's in man-to-man, and Moorhead uh, motions DJ Johnson as the tight end out, which makes the inside linebacker just vacate that hole. They snap the ball. The offensive line does an incredible job blocking that play. Like, Verdell wasn't even touched. It was very similar to that pl- to the game-clinching touchdown against Utah in the 2019 Pac-12 championship game, but he was an even bigger hole than that. And when when Verdell took that to the house in 2019, he had to break a tackle from a linebacker and then take it. In this uh, in, in the Ohio State game, he had to break in quotes a tackle from a safety, but he just ran past the safety. The safety didn't even touch him. The other safety was able to kind of catch up, and then he broke that tackle. It was just exceptional blocking, and the Oregon offensive line allowed one tackle for loss the entire game. It was a one-yard loss on a Travis Dye run in the second, in the first quarter, and that was during the 99-yard touchdown drive. Just insane. If I had told you heading into the game, hey, one team is only, is only going to have one tackle for loss, you would have for sure thought it was Oregon, right? <laughs> and not Ohio State. Mm-hmm. But... It was especially because Fresno State like sacked Anthony Brown and forced fumbles of Anthony Brown, and the Oregon offensive line did not play that well against Fresno State, and they played awesome. 
against Ohio State. And it makes me very excited for the rest of the year to see what they can do against Pac-12 defenses. I mean, I love the Pac-12, but there's a massive talent (laughs) disparity between Ohio State and every other defensive line that Oregon's going to play this year. That's a, that's a great point. When we're looking, we're, I, keep, I feel like I say that too much. I need to get vary it, vary it up a little bit. So bear with me, folks. Um, but the offensive line, another point that I liked about this game that was so interesting was the rotation that we saw. I believe the starting, uh, so basically for the rotation, I think that it's really just on the tackles. Forsyth and the two guards, Bass and, and Walker, are pretty you know locked in at this point. But against Ohio State, we saw a mixture of Jones and Moore, uh, I believe it was. And then we also saw Jocelyn Jaramillo and Sala. Uh, those were the the two tackles that rotated with each other. And Dawson Jaramillo was getting some good snaps late in the game, which just shows you how confident the, the offensive line staff is with him. And I think the the concerns over a lack of chemistry definitely make a lot of sense with the rotation just kind of on the surface. But if you can see them do it against a team like Ohio State, why wouldn't it work? That's got to give you confidence that it's going to keep working uh, throughout the season. Oh, for sure. And that's why Mario Cristobal and Alex Mirabal make millions of dollars to go to the offensive line. <laughs> and I just podcast about the Oregon Ducks. Exactly. Uh, I thought they were fine critiques after the Fresno State game. But, you know, you beat Ohio State in the horseshoe, and I'm like, whatever you did's working, keep it up. And, I mean, I haven't done, like, a deep dive looking at the offensive line. Obviously, the stats show that they played very well. The eye test, just watching the game, shows that they played very well. But even uh, Matt Leinart was talking about how, because after USC got, like, demolished by Stanford, how Matt Leinart was... Oh, yeah, it was insane. Not even the coaches poll because USC got 96 more votes than Stanford this morning. But uh, Matt Leinart was was on the sideline for the last six minutes of the game or so as well. And and he tweeted out, oh, this Oregon team would destroy SC on the line. Like they're so much more physical. And yeah, I'm just so optimistic for where the program is going after a win like this, and it's and it starts up front. It starts have it starts with having an offensive line coach as the head coach, having a culture of physicality like that. And I also think that does extend to the defense because the defense also wants to lay the boom on people. Like the entire team is just loves playing football and wants to just beat up the opponent, and it's so much fun to watch, and it wins football games. Man. More numbers that stick out here. Uh, this is really like handy having these, by the way. So shout out to Ohio State for, for hooking us up with these. 38 rushes, 269 rushing yards, three touchdowns on the ground, 7.1 yards a pop. That's between CJ Burdell, Anthony Brown, and Travis Dye. And then 11 different players registered a catch. So it just shows you that that Brown's comfortable with with basically everybody mm-hmm. that, they're, that they're rotating in and out of there. And can yeah. we take a second to talk about the freshmen, the, the freshman tight ends? Terrence Ferguson uh, was in there a lot, and yeah. Malika Matavau, uh caught what would end up being the, the game-winning touchdown. Like, this, this 2021 yeah. recruiting class is is making itself, uh, you know, heard, and, and their impact is, is undeniable. Yeah, and that was another great play designed by Joe, by, by Joe Moorhead because Matavau was very open on that play and just completely fooled the Ohio State defense. And, it, yeah, 
So many people stepped up on the offense. Um, and also what's crazy about that rushing yard total and how they average seven yards per carry. If you take away CJ Verdell's long touchdown run, it's still over five yards a carry. If you could guarantee five yards a carry on every play, you would go undefeated. <laughs> like you would be able to give your defense rest and score. Like, which is kind of what was happening is Oregon would get the ball and be like, we're, we're not going to uh, strike quickly. They didn't take like a ton of, I mean, like they did push the ball down the field, but they weren't taking like 40 or 50 yard bombs. I think they threw like, like two or three of those. They were very much our best defense is making sure Ohio state doesn't have the ball. And they just kept moving the chains by some ex- expert play calls from Joe Moorhead. Yeah. It, Moorhead. I mean, we're, it was so satisfying to see that if I'm looking at this from an Oregon fan's perspective last year, I think the more and more we look at it, especially with how the team is progressing, we realize that we can't take that much from last year, but I feel like there was this growing sense. Maybe, I mean, I don't want to infer too much, but it seemed like there was a growing sense, at least among fans. Wow. More has this phenomenal play caller and this is what we're seeing on Saturdays and Shuck's the best that we can do, you know, credit to, to Tyler Shuck. You know, I don't want to bad mouth a player or anything, but it just, it wasn't their season from an offensive standpoint by any means. They had a young offensive line, uh, a, a guy getting his, his first uh, taste of college action uh, as the full-time starter, uh, a new offensive coordinator coming in. That's, that's not something that's going to happen really quickly. And they only had seven games to pandemic. do it. Yeah. During the pandemic. Like, yeah. Like, so that just makes my point even more. You know, you had all those pieces in place, but there was so much else at play. And now we're seeing why Joe Moorhead is, I feel like, widely viewed as one of the best offensive minds in college football, at least, because he, he called an amazing game. Yeah. Um, I think it's very obvious why when Joe Moorhead was hired by Oregon, Washington hired John Donovan. Both were former offensive coordinators at Penn State, and Penn State fans were all in, basically were all in unison, wondering why Washington hired John Donovan, and were very happy for Oregon fans that they were going to get Joe Moorhead as their <laughs> offensive coordinator. And I would say, based on two weeks through the 2021 season, that those Penn State fans were very correct because the I know this isn't the Washington podcast. The Washington offense has been abysmal. We can make it one. No, I'm kidding. Let's not do that. Um, but uh, yeah, I think Joe Moorhead is probably the best offensive coordinator in the Pac-12. I would have to probably do like a deeper dive to say that's like a, like definitive. But just off the top of my head, I can't think of any offensive play caller that I would take over Moorhead. And now he's going to have the elite talent acquisition and recruiting from Mario Cristobal and his staff to pluck into his system. That's a very dangerous combination. Certainly a lot of reason for excitement when we're looking at both the Oregon offense and defense. Um, you know, b- before we get running too long here, Dylan, uh, I-, I think it'd be kind of fun to talk about a couple of the questions that we have maybe talked, uh, discussed before we hit record here. As far as what this win means for the Oregon football program, we, we've kind of talked about, you know, this is probably the biggest regular season win I don't know if I'd say necessarily within program history, but, but certainly, you know, within the past 10 years or so, cause it, it felt like a college football playoff type of game. And then now you see that they still have, you know, eight, 
eight or nine games left, something or ten games left, something like yeah, that. Ten more games. Yeah. yeah and then t- t- championship. Yeah. If so this is it's just such a statement win. And it's if I'm Mario Cristobal, that's gotta be so satisfying for me because you got your first bowl win, I believe if I'm remembering correctly, a seven six win over Michigan State in the Red Box Bowl. I was at that game at Levi Stadium. It was so hard to watch. Um on on both on both ends. Uh like both teams, I mean. And then he 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 gets this recruiting momentum. He gets the kind of guys that he wants into into the program. And now you're just seeing all of it pay off. You're seeing that culture pay off on Saturdays. And and the and the Ducks came in and pulled off what a lot of people thought was almost impossible because they don't lose in Ohio Stadium. No, they do not. But they did on Saturday. And I think in terms of... Now, I think if you're going to take away um, just like where it sends that individual team that this would be the largest winning program history. I think obviously in 2010 where they beat Oregon state and went to the national championship for the first time, that would be bigger because yeah, you're going to the national championship for the first time. But I would say that this is probably bigger in terms of just like as a single like win because of what it's going to mean for the future of the program, because for the last five or the last five plus years, the upper echelon of college football has been Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State. Those are the three teams that constantly make the playoff. You can say Oklahoma would also be that fourth, but they've also never won a college football playoff game. Clemson, Ohio State, and Alabama have all won national championships in the college football playoff era, and there was a bit, there was a widening of this recruiting gap between those three teams and everybody else. Even other teams like Oregon were recruiting better, but also Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State were getting even more four-star talent, even more five-star talent. And it was just honestly getting, I wouldn't say ridiculous because I'm not going to critique these, ki- these kids for making decisions that are best for themselves, but it was honestly just insane to see it. This one can help change that because Oregon can go into a recruit's home and say, hey, we beat Ohio State and we did it with less talent. Imagine what we can do with more talent. This win will go such a long way if Oregon's able to take care of business the rest of the season to making all that talk of of saying that they want to compete for a college football playoff, they want to compete for a national championship, to making that a reality. Because it's going to be... It's, I don't. I don't think they're going to win the national champ, the national championship this year, but they can win one the next five years by narrowing that recruiting gap. And a win like this, where Ohio State and Oregon aren't slated to play again until the twenty thirties, will go a long way, because they also didn't play last year. So the only like data point they have is Oregon went into Ohio Stadium without two five-star defensive players who are bona fide first-round NFL draft picks and one. And heading into this game, the the perception or the thought already was, I feel like, hopefully Oregon can be competitive in this game. And just think of the just think of the wonders that would work and the recruiting, the recruiting impact, the recruiting realm. And just like you were saying, they're able to go in now and pitch, we can win big games on the road. I mean, that's one of the biggest parts of their pitches is we play in big time games. You know, you want to be tested against the best. Like people want to do that. Okay, that's awesome. But are you winning those games? Yeah, now we are. So that that's just going to be that's going to be so big for them moving forward. And and I think it's it's just a a, a the biggest statement win 
for, for Mario Cristobal in his, during his tenure here in Eugene. And I think it, it's going to silence a lot of doubters that the ducks are the real deal and they're not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah. And also this is probably looking too far ahead, but this game also does make me much more optimistic about than about the Georgia game next year, because after watching oh, no, Clemson, no question. Georgia, cause I watched Clemson, Georgia, and I just kept thinking, Oh my God, Oregon places, place Georgia next year. Like that's going to be a bloodbath. Cause also we wa- I watched, I watched Clemson, Georgia, right after driving home from Fresno State, Oregon. And now a week later, I'm like, yeah, no, Oregon can, like, will be competitive in that game. Obviously, we're not going to preview that game a year out, but that's going to be a very tight, close, competitive game, which will also be another great recruiting opportunity for Oregon to say, hey, we also went toe-to-toe with Georgia in, in Atlanta. I'm just... I just can't say enough good things about this Ohio State win. It is unreal that they were able to get this win. Um, being on the field after the game, I, I'm I'm never going to forget that. I was like, both of us were right there when all the Ducks were celebrating with the Duck fans that traveled, which by the way, I thought Ducks fans traveled pretty well. Obviously, they were still the vast minority at Ohio Stadium, but I was expecting it to be like 95-5, and I thought they probably had like 10% of the capacity, which I don't think is shabby at all. And there were times when I was on the field, especially in that third quarter when they took a two-touchdown lead, that you could very distinctly hear a Let's Go or like a Let's Go Ducks chant from the opposite side of the stadium. They they had it rocking as, as much as you can when you're when you're outnumbered like that in a hundred thousand uh, a venue uh, fit for a hundred thousand. We've talked about a lot of awesome stuff here, Dylan. Uh, I am so tired. I think I'm running on like three hours of sleep. I can't sleep on planes at all. But I'm backing oh, Eugene. So I can't wait for can't wait for another week. Ducks got Stony Brook this week. Uh, Going to be huge for them to to obviously hopefully get that win. One that looks like. It's far less intimidating than Ohio State. Uh, the Ducks get this big win over Ohio State, but they got super banged up. So it's going to be uh, be good for them to to have some time to, to heal up from some injuries. Uh, we, we don't need to get into specifics right now necessarily because if you watch yeah. the game, you saw how many people got banged up. Um, but yeah, yeah let's just kind of wrap it up. What well, else? Yeah, I was going to say um, we're not going to get into all the injuries that were sustained during this podcast, uh, but Mario is speaking with media tomorrow on Monday. So I'm sure he's going to be asked about a lot of those players because let's be honest, there's not much to preview about a Stony Brook matchup. So, which doesn't mean you should not listen to the, to the Ducks Digest Stony Brook preview. You definitely should and get very oh, we're gonna be all over about, it. about that great Stony Brook team. But Cristobal will be asked about, I assume many of the injured players and getting updates. There were many players that I didn't even realize got hurt until post game when I saw them celebrating with boots on their foot. And I was like, they got hurt too. When did they get hurt? It took everybody, man. It took everybody to get this win, which, you know, speaks to how, how well the whole team came together. But I also think it speaks to a degree while that depth is there they still need more. I mean, like there's, I feel like for a lot of these big teams, they're like, Oh yeah, throw, throw that guy in like, whatever, like we're ready to go. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But, but What's I mean, Alabama's I'm not trying to worst case scenario. If like four people in the same position get hurt, they're like, Oh, I guess we're just going to have the true freshman five-star come in. 
Like, yeah, it, it, exactly. It's, it's, that's why we're saying like there's levels to this. Like an organ is, they're not up there. I, I hope no one comes away from this thinking that we're saying organs on the same no, level. No, no. Like they're like unstoppable. Cause that's clearly not the case, but man, this is such a massive step in the right direction. And mm-hmm. it's something that we're going to see continue to pay off mo- moving down the road here. But yeah. what, what, I think, anything? Sorry. I think heading in to this season, I would say that Oregon was like on the, like, was part on the lower end of like tier two of college football. Like, tier one is obviously the, the perennial college football playoff contenders, but tier two, I think, is, is probably like, you know, like 10, 15 teams. I thought they were pretty firmly in there. Um, I think this win, assuming that they still have a solid at least ten win season, will put them near the near the top of tier two. For sure. Well, but before we get out of here, Dylan, do you have any just thoughts about you know your your trip, being in Columbus, being around the Ohio State fan base, being around all the college yeah. football history? Um, it has been so cool making the trip. Uh, I'll. I'll People in Ohio are very nice. Like yeah. they would like trash talk when you when if you wore Oregon stuff, but they but it was in a very friendly way. Uh, after the game, a lot of people were like, "Ah, oh, great game." Also, I will say this: this is funny. So my dad and I are also big Vikings fans. So we went to the Vikings Cincinnati game, which also talk about a complete one eighty from watching Ohio State Oregon because we were rooting for the Vikings. They had seventeen penalties called on them; five of them were declined. And I was like, or, and I was like, Mario Cristobal would never let this happen. They would never have this team be so undisciplined. But my dad was wearing a Troy Dye jersey, uh, Troy Dye Vikings jersey, and was wearing an Oregon Ducks hat. We had like 10 people come up to us and go, Go Ducks! I hate the Buckeyes because we're so close to Kentucky that a lot of the people were all at the game, like live in Kentucky. And we talked to this guy at a bar today, and he was like, Oh, us in Kentucky, we hate Ohio State. <laughs> so we were so happy to see Oregon beat them. So that was also just like a really fun because I because I just would have assumed Cincinnati would like Ohio State because it's two hours away. But that is not <laughs> that, that is not the case because we had so many people just so happy <laughs> to see Ohio State lose in Cincinnati. Man, what a what a trip. That's that's definitely it's setting the bar high for for uh, trips covering this Oregon team. Uh, I just loved being around uh, Columbus. It was totally different from Eugene. I really liked the architecture there. Like, I don't know if you got that yeah. feel like walking around campus. They had some really cool buildings. I got to go in like one of the, the libraries on campus. The facilities oh, yeah. are insane. Uh, we probably already knew that at a school this big, but it, it, it was just, it was just so fun. I mean, there's very few complaints apart from me not having any sleep. Um, but mm-hmm. if you're if you're tuning into this, uh, we have this on our we'll have this on our YouTube channel. It'll probably get up on the podcasting apps first, just because video takes forever to process. But if you're watching this on YouTube, kindly ask that you subscribe to the channel. It helps us keep doing our thing. If you're not watching on the YouTube channel, you should go check it out. Uh, Oregon Football Max Taurus is the name of the channel there, and you can find uh, find us more of our work on DucksDigest.com. You can find me on Twitter at mtaurussports. You can find Dylan on Twitter at Dylan Mickinen, as you can see there on your screen. We got tons more content coming out all of the time, so make sure to stay tuned in to Ducks Digest for all the latest on the Oregon Ducks. Thanks for uh, watching and listening. 
and we'll see you guys in the next one. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.